All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm not endorsing anything in that clip or anything uh, like that, but clearly uh, Fletcher here, played by Jim Carrey, is having a problem with confession. He's having a really hard time being honest. If you know anything about this movie, not necessarily endorsing that as your family film for Sunday night or anything uh, like that, but uh, Jim Carrey here cannot tell a lie. His son makes a birthday wish that for 24 hours he has to be brutally honest. He has to confess everything and tell the truth. And he is a lawyer, so it is a difficult thing for him in this movie to do that. Nothing against lawyers, but sometimes in the movie, uh, he needs to stretch the truth a little bit. But for 24 hours, he cannot tell a lie. He must be completely honest. He must confess and be brutally honest. And what he ends up discovering in this film, actually, as as humorous and crass as it is uh, a little bit, what he ends up discovering is that brutal honesty and confession is actually not just a, a good thing to do as a little fun trick. It's, it's a really, really healthy way to live. In fact, if you've been around uh, here for any length of time, and I know for some of you this is your very first uh, Sunday, we're so glad that you're here. We love new people uh, at Hope, whether you're down here or up there, wherever you are, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, your home as much as anybody else. We're so glad that you're here. If you've been here for any length of time, you probably know that we encourage you to put into practice your faith to activate your faith, that that Christianity, that following Jesus isn't for an hour on Sunday morning once a week. We don't just come and hear a message and go home, but we encourage you to activate your faith, whether it's the daily Bible readings that you're hearing or whether it's uh, praying and having that time in God's word uh, daily. And yet we we talk about these spiritual disciplines of, of prayer and Bible study and community and worship and all that, and yet there's a few spiritual disciplines that we tend to shy away from. And when I say spiritual disciplines, essentially what I'm saying is things we do for our soul, similar to what exercise and and eating right and things like that do for our body. They are disciplines, they are habits that we're called to do if we want the kind of results we want. Well, the same is true in our faith. We have exercises, spiritual disciplines that we do. And yet I'm guessing that nobody has come up to you recently. I mean, we talked to each other. Hey, how's your Bible reading going? How's your prayer life? I'm guessing none of you have anybody come up to you recently and say, hey, I'm a guy, as we say, like, hey, bro, ladies, I don't, what do you, hey, soul, sister, I don't know, what, whatever, (laughs) it's not in the notes, I don't know where that came from, but, hey, sister, I don't, when you're just talking to each other casually, when's the last time somebody came up to you and said, hey, how's your confessional life going, right, probably haven't heard that recently, hey, dude, had any sweet times of repentance recently? right? I'm guessing you know, but we don't talk like that, right? Because if we're honest, confession, when I say that, or like repentance, well, how does that make you feel? Like, yes, sign me up for that. I am so glad I came to church today to talk about repentance. Sign me up, right? If we're honest, there's kind of a, a weight and a, and a burden that comes with that. And, and for some of us, if we're honest, when I say repent, just that word alone One of two things probably conjures up in your mind, uh, probably some bad church experiences. You've been burned by the church where you've experienced a preacher or somebody standing up and saying, you need to repent of your sins, and there's just a lot of guilt and and shame associated with that, a lot of church hurt for some of you if you've had a bad experience. For others of you, when I say repent or repentance, you're thinking about the guy that's on the little stage with his blowhorn down at the uh, different festivals downtown, uh, right? You know, or at farmer's market, right? Turn or burn, right? Repent of your sins, which makes a lot of sense. That is my message to you this morning. Uh, I'm just kidding, right? No, it is not. 
because I think the word confess and I think the word repentance have gotten some really bad raps and are loaded. And my challenge to us this morning, this is where we're going to go. I'm telling you where we're going to go. That by the end of our time today, this is my sincere prayer and desire for every single one of us, that when you hear the word confession or repentance, that instead of a weight and a burden, you would say, oh, freedom is on the way. Oh, joy is coming. Oh, peace is coming. Because on the other side of repentance, on the other side of confessing those things in our hearts is pure joy. The joy of knowing that you are loved and forgiven by the God of the universe, as we sang about this morning. So that's where we're going to go. The question is, how do we get there? Joy is available for you today. Life is the invitation of Jesus. Forgiveness is available for you today. But how do we get there from confession and repentance? How do we get there? Well, we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark. So before we get to our reading today, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, which I know a lot of us are, that's totally fine. This is the first time you've opened it up in a while, that's totally fine. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. Gospel means good news that tell the good news of Jesus during his time on earth. So it's going to be about in the back fourth of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark is right after Matthew. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and you're going to look for the big number 1, which is the chapter number, and we're going to start in verse 14, okay? We arrive on the scene. Jesus is really early on in his ministry. People are just getting to know him. He's kind of giving his, his inaugural speech, his impression, and kind of his mission statement. And so in verse 14, we read, after John, meaning John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And then verse 15, let's read this together uh, nice and loud up on the screen here. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So there's those words, repent and believe the good news. So what Jesus is setting up here, I'll try to keep this back so everybody can see that, okay? In a visual sense, Jesus is giving us a picture of what it looks like to encounter him. Some of you, this is it this morning. This is going to be one of those moments for you. Some of you, you remember this moment a long time ago, but for all of us on the timeline of our lives, we're going along and at some point we encounter Jesus. For the first time, which a lot of people were in Jesus's day, they were encountering him in that X marks the spot moment. But the thing is that we often forget is that we continue to have those moments throughout our lives. It's not just a one-time thing. These X marks the spot moments in our lives are any time that we need to change course. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, my, my, my priorities are out of whack. You haven't spent time with God in a long time. It's your first time at worship in a long time. You haven't been making Jesus a priority in your life. And so maybe this morning is that moment. But these moments can also be any opportunity that we have to confess our wrongdoings to God. As we talk about in our Lutheran liturgy a lot, we pray things known and unknown, things done and left undone. We all have blind spots, right? We, we, We sin, we fall short of the glory of God, as Scripture talks about a lot. We all have that weight and that burden of some guilt or shame over maybe some things that we've done in the past. And so in these moments, we have the opportunity to stop and confess it and be real before God, or we can just blow right through it and just keep on going in our lives. But Jesus is offering us a new pattern for this, and there's two words. What are the two words up there in, we'll call it Hawkeye gold in that color up there, all right? What are the two words? It's first to repent, and the second word is to 
believe, right? So Jesus gives us this roadmap to repent and believe. Instead of just blowing right through those moments, we come clean and we repent, which is the first half of the circle. And then secondly, we believe, which is the second half of the circle. There are two parts to that. If anybody, if any preacher, any church, any street preacher, anybody on TV, any friend ever talks to you about the need to confess or repent your sins, but does not come full circle with you and remind you of the good news available in Jesus Christ that no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been, you are loved and forgiven by God. That is not the gospel. That is not the complete gospel. And all too often, the reason so many of us feel really guilty in our lives is because we think that repentance ends right there. We think that it's all about, I'm just going to just kind of confess all my wrongdoings and being a Christian just gives me more things to feel guilty about. And we giggle about it, but that's a lot, that's the, the version of Christianity that a lot of us live. I just, oh, I did all these terrible things and so I'm going to repent. There's the back half of the circle that reminds us that we are loved and we are forgiven, but we all have these opportunities, big things and small things. You're late to your son's baseball game or your soccer game because you were working late. You blow up uh, in in anger in a conversation with your spouse over a a conversation about your in-laws because that never happens. You've been emotionally distant from your spouse. You haven't prayed in months because, well, you're not quite convinced that God is still listening or would really care. And in these big ways and small ways, we can, in those X marks the spot moments, we can confess or we can deny. Not only the things we do, but the things we hide, the things we'd rather not address. If we're honest, every single one of us, not only this morning, but every morning when we walk in here, we bring our burdens. And I am not faking this. Our church building is surrounded by large rocks, of which there are about 175 in this bag right here. We all walk in carrying burdens. And the scary thing is that for a lot of us, all of it's on the inside. It's like this dude, right? Don't you feel bad for him, right? You're like, whoa, that looks goofy. Yeah, it really is silly to carry around unnecessary burdens. And for some of you, you've been carrying that weight of your sin and your guilt and your shame for years, for months, for weeks. Maybe it's something you did last week. But the reality is for all of us, that is a burden that you were never meant to carry. And it's heavy. And some of you are like, John, just let go of it already. And that's what your father is saying to you this morning. Just let go of it already. There are some very weighty things in all of our lives. Problem is, we hide them. It's the anger that you've struggled with for years that flared back up again in the family car on the way to church this morning. What you're calling a diet has actually turned really, really, really unsafe and unhealthy for your health. You know those late night internet sessions when nobody else is around and, well, except the God that created you. It's the bitterness and and anger in your heart towards a coworker, whatever those things are. Now, if I can just pause and be real, time out. Some of you are thinking, wow, John, thanks for the cheery message this morning. You really know how to light up a room, right? That's what I'm here for, right? But here's the reality. Sometimes I think that God needs to do something in us so that he can do something through us. Some of you really, really want to do something great for God. And he's saying to you this morning, okay, let's start in your heart. I want to do something in you so that I can do something through you. 
What if this was the weekend? What if this was the Sunday where you just didn't walk in and get your coffee and get your bulletin? Everybody asks, hey, how's it going? Great. Awesome. Really good. How's the, how's the marriage? Wonderful. How's your family? Couldn't be better. How's work? Good. How's your prayer life? Awesome. Couldn't be better, right? You're doing that on the inside. Spiritual gymnastics. And yet on the outside, everything's great. I really want to be the kind of church, you guys, where we can come in and somebody asks, how's it going? And you can say, this is how it's going. And I really, 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 and let's go to the cross together and let's leave it there. The problem is we don't. We hide it. Anybody ever had one of those moments since we're talking about being honest? You should all raise your hand when I ask you this question. Ever had one of those moments where people are coming over to your apartment or your house or whatever, and you've got like 10 minutes before they come over, and yet you've got about an hour worth of cleaning and pickup to do, and you have that one coat closet, and you're just like, it's all going in there, baby, and you just pick it up and shove it in there, and you lean as hard as you can until the door locks, and then your neighbors come over, and you're like, hey, how's it going, right? Just shove it all in there, and you just pray to God at some point during your dinner party that the closet doesn't unleash, and then all of your junk is all over the floor, right? That's how we live our lives, even as Christians sometimes. I'll just hide it. I'll just shut. I mean, I'm at church. Heaven forbid somebody finds out I'm not perfect. <gasps> and yet we say again and again around here that we are a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. But sometimes we live our church life here together as if we need to put on a show. You got nothing to prove. None of us do. Every single one of us is walking in here with that. Apostle John puts it this way in uh, 1 John chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. If you grew up Lutheran in a traditional Lutheran sense with the green hymnal uh, and some liturgy and an organ and all that bit, you probably remember this verse from the liturgy. It's right out of Scripture. Let's read this together. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the offer. That is the invitation of the gospel. On the other side of confession and repentance is belief in the good news and that forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ that's available for every single one of you today. I have heard far too many people say, Christians, just say this, this phrase flippantly, and we say, oh, you know, everybody's got skeletons in their closet, right? What if you didn't have to? What if, what if no matter what you've done in your past, about how ashamed you've been of it, no matter what's going on in your life, you say, here I am. A little, little clue for you here. God already knows anyway. So why are we so afraid to come clean when your God already says, I forgive you, just bring it to me. God doesn't invite us to confess and bring our burdens before him so we can feel more guilty about it. It's so that we can be set free. And that's the invitation today. So how do we actually do that? What does that look like in, in real life, not just hypothetically? Well, in our story today, we have a great example of that. So if you're in your Bible, go from the New Testament to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is at the beginning of your Bible and go to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is one chapter before our Bible reading today. So if you're following along or you've got your smartphone or your Bible app, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're continuing this series today called Life Lessons from King David. And we've been in the book 
books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. You fouled David along from being a shepherd boy and defeating Goliath, and now he's the king of Israel. And when we arrive on the scene today, David is like the man. He is the king of Israel. All the tribes have come together. He's restored Israel to national prominence. He is the leader of Israel's armies. He's the general. He's the king. He's in power. He's got money. He's got everything you could want. Except some truth tellers in his life. Except some accountability. And what we discover in chapters 11 and 12 today is David's fall, but also a roadmap to redemption. And we're going to follow that road, that roadmap to redemption today with 10 keys along the road to redemption. Anybody ever watch David Letterman back in the day with his top 10 list? Anybody top 10 David Letterman? So today is a top 10 sermon, the top 10 keys, okay, on the road to redemption. If you're feeling like a failure today, if you're feeling like you've screwed up, if you're overwhelmed, if you're tired, if you're burdened, this is a top 10 list for you, all right? So we start a chapter before our reading today in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, you might think that's a throwaway verse in this story, but it's very important. David is not where he should be. At least he's not where he normally is, out with his guys, with his mighty men that are fighting the war for him. Instead, David says, I'll just hang back at home. I'll just sit out on my porch and enjoy the poolside view and everything like that and hang out. And I don't know exactly, but David is off of his normal rhythm. I'm guessing he's tired. I'm guessing he's worn out. He's a little distracted and he's let his guard down and possibly he's a little lonely. Perfect setup for the enemy. Perfect setup for the enemy. I want to pause right there before anything happens, before any temptation comes. Do you know what your triggers are? That is key number one. In our battle against sin and our battle against temptation to stay on the road that Jesus calls us to, do you know the circumstances that cause you to be tempted the most? I had a mentor that uh, once reminded me of this acronym, and it's always stuck with me in these moments. Whenever I'm talking about sin or temptation, it's HALT, H-A-L-T. Everybody say HALT. HALT. Stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired, okay? If you're hungry, angry, angry, lonely, tired, don't make any big decisions, Okay? Don't, don't get sucked into anything. Don't get pulled into anything. You know those Snickers commercials, right, where the guy turns into Betty White, you know? You're not you when you're hungry, right? You're also not you when you're alone. You're not you when you're lonely. You're not you when you're tired, whatever those things are. Do you know what your triggers are? David doesn't. Verse 2, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty. Okay? Husbands, if you're sitting next to your wives right now, whisper in their ear, you're an unusual beauty. Tell them that right now. There you go. <laughs> the Bible is useful for all sorts of things, okay? This is a little different, though. Verse 3, he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, okay? Now, anyone in their right mind, especially David, a man after God's own heart, the story should end right there. There should no be, be no rest of 2 Samuel chapter 11 or 12, for that matter. It should have ended right there. She's married to another guy. End of story. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. David was lonely and tired, and he was vulnerable. And that's the second thing that we learn before David does anything, 
is preemptively key number two. Resisting temptation tomorrow starts with a decision today. Resisting temptation tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month or next year starts with a conviction that you have today. What do I mean by that? When you are in the moment, are you making the decision about whether to go forward in the moment, in the heat of the moment, or have you decided ahead of time? If you wait into that moment, when it comes to that situation, is your attitude, well, we'll see what happens. Well, we'll kind of see how I'm feeling, right? I'm going to go on this date with this guy or with this gal, and, you know, I might stay the night at her house, and we'll just kind of wait and see what happens. We'll kind of see where things go. I'm going to go out with some friends, we're going to have a few drinks, and I'm sure everything will be fine, but, you know, what, it depends on what everybody else is doing. We'll just kind of see how the night goes. Are you making the decision in the heat of the moment, or have you made up your mind ahead of time? Because as David found out, key number three, following our feelings rarely ends well. Following our feelings really ends well. Is there anybody that, that's with me? I love crunchy Cheetos. That is a feeling that I get a lot, okay? I get an urge for crunchy Cheetos a lot. Do I eat crunchy Cheetos by the mouthful every single day? No, right? That would not be a smart decision, right? But here's the thing, in a much more serious way, much more serious than that, there is a prevalent belief in our culture today that says your feelings are truth. Your feelings alone, unchecked, unquestioned, are truth, which is scary because the lie that you are being told is that if you have feelings, if you have repetitive feelings or urges, for you to resist or fight or question those, that means you are being fundamentally disingenuine or inauthentic. Uh, be, be true to yourself. When you have feelings and urges and desires, I'm not talking about Cheetos. I'm thinking about things that could destroy your body or your soul. Do you just blindly go along with those and say, oh, man, I'm just going to follow my heart. I'm just going to follow my truth. I'm just going to live my truth, baby, because that's who I am, because that's, that's who God made me. And at face value, that sounds really appealing. I'll be honest. I love Cheetos, okay? I want to go along with that. But what about the Cheetos are things that can harm your soul and your body? Sounds so great to say, and maybe you've heard this in Christian circles. Man, woman, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. And here's the danger with that. I don't know what I need sometimes. Because God knows what I need way better than I know what I need, right? Feelings alone are good but left unchecked or unquestioned. So here would be my, my wisdom and my advice to you that I, I see God spreading out all throughout Scripture. Don't just blindly follow your heart. Question your heart. Check your heart. Feelings are a part of that. They're not bad, but they just can't lead the way for us because there's this battle Paul talks about in Romans 7 that's going on in each of us. For those of you that have put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you, but there is also your old self or your old nature that Paul talks about. Martin Luther, the founder of our, our, our movement, of our Lutheran denomination, says, I am 100% saint, and I am 100% sinner. And that goes right along with what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? That's me, right? Anybody with me on that? Why do I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do, okay? I am torn. There's this battle going on inside of me. And so whenever I am in one of those moments where I'm tempted to go down a road that I know I shouldn't go on, even if I have the urge or the feeling, I'm all, always going to stop. I'm going to question that. I'm going to hold it up against God's word. Now, in a very visual sense, to help you understand that 
My six-year-old son, Caleb, is really, really into toy trains right now that have the magnetic connection to them. So please, please, please do not be overwhelmed by my artistic ability, okay? Okay, so you've got your trains here, okay? Everybody say, ooh. Everybody say, ah. Go to art school, John. I know, I'm getting there, okay? So you've got these three trains, and here's what our culture, this is the smokestack, okay? Coming up, okay? This is what our culture says. You hit your train to your feelings, Feelings should be right there in the front, okay? Then you could ask some other people for wisdom, and then if you have time, let's see what God says. Oh, maybe I'll pray about it. I've got a big decision to make or whatever. Instead, Scripture says this. We start with God's Word. And what I mean by God's Word is you have made up your mind ahead of time what the non-negotiables are for you in your life, what your convictions are. We start with God's Word, then we surround ourselves with wisdom, with mentors, with teachers, with coaches, with godly brothers and sisters in Christ. If God's word doesn't directly speak to it and it's not so clear, then I got to turn to some other people and say, can we pray together on this? I've got a decision to make. I'm struggling with what to do here in this moment, okay? Then I need some wisdom. And then, hear me say this, do not completely dismiss your feelings because God, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and the Holy Spirit gives us nurges and, 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 and urges sometimes as well. And we want to pay attention to those, but we don't lead with our feelings. We lead with God's word. And the beauty of this analogy is that there's time in between there. I have never regretted, you ever been in one of these moments at work or with a friend or something like that and you're just really ticked off and you got this whole email and you're like, I am so ready to send this. You're like, let me sleep on it. I have never regretted sleeping on it. I have never regretted in a moment in an argument with my wife saying, can we just take a couple minutes and cool off? Never regretted that. And maybe I go to God's word and maybe I I go to a close friend and say, hey, we are arguing about this. Do I have a right to be upset? Probably not. Oh, good, I'm glad I waited. Never in my life have I been happy that I started with that train right there, that I've let feelings dictate where I'm going. Whatever it is, should I go to grad school? Should we move to this town? Should I take this job? I'm a little unhappy in my marriage, John. I think I'm ready to just call it quit. I have this feeling, I have this urge, I'm just gonna go with that. I don't really feel, I don't feel like I'm getting my needs met in this relationship, so I'm out. And how dangerous could it be if our feelings are left unchecked by the word of God and our brothers and sisters around us? That's why we need community. We don't lead with feelings alone. Here's this integrity is often choosing courage over comfort. Boy, it's a lot easier to start with our feelings and our desires, isn't it? Integrity, being a man or woman of integrity, is choosing courage over comfort. Why is that? Because I want a prize that's deeper than what this moment can offer me. In that moment, when I want to get that drink, I want to go to the next level in my relationship. I want to look at that thing online or whatever it is in that moment. I've got to remind myself and let the Holy Spirit remind me, John, you are moving towards a bigger, more permanent prize, which is the pleasure and the desire of God and giving him glory than whatever that fleeting moment can offer me. And that is the lie of the enemy. I'm just going to meet, meet, meet that need and you'll be forever be satisfied. Some of you have been going back to the same well over and over and over. I had the urge. I had the feeling. How's that going for you? Are you filled up or are you still empty? Ask David how it goes when you blindly follow your feelings. So because David is powerful, he calls for Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He sleeps with her. 
And then as a really good, solid, godly man, he sends her away. It's messed up. Because no one needs to know, right? Clearly, David is feeling convicted already because you skip down in the story to verse 14. He arranges for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, one of his best friends, the key leader in God's army, to go to the front lines. Because what happens on the front lines? You get taken out. And here we arrive at key number four. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Or as your grandma or your mom once taught you, two wrongs don't make a right. So true. Two wrongs don't make a right. We read in verse 26, skipping down the story, David then takes Bathsheba, of all things, to be his wife, trying to cover it up again. And we read this in verse 27. One of the most startling passages in these entire books. We, David, like he's a Bible hero. He's painted on the wall of my Sunday school wing going up, right? He's on the flannel graph. He's a Bible hero. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. I don't know what the Greek for displeased is, but I'm guessing it's more than bummed. God was heartbroken at what David had done. And there's key number five. No one is above sin. No church attendance, no Bible reading plan, no prayer life, no title, position, salary, size of your house, how many cars you have, your popularity, how long you've been coming to church, how many Bible studies you've led, how long you've been a Christian. Nobody is immune to temptation. Nobody is above sin. And now we arrive at chapter 12. And here's David thinking he's going to get off scot-free because I'm, I'm powerful and I'm just going to cover it all up. God sends a close friend and aide, a prophet named Nathan, to confront David. We pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. And then you heard in the Bible reading, Nathan goes on to tell him this story to try to get to his heart and said there was a rich man, a powerful man, that took things that were not his to abuse his privilege and power. If God has given you power today, if God has made you a boss, a leader, a manager, a teacher, a parent, anyone of influence, which is all of us, you have not been given your power and your authority and your leadership to get what you want and meet your feelings and your desires. God has put you in a position of influence to bless and serve others. And David got that all mixed up, and that's what this story is about. He took things that weren't his. He rubbed it in the face of those that were below him. And David gets irate. He says, how could this guy do that? And David just so mad. Like, David is so blind. Further evidence that all of us have blind spots in our lives. It says, David was irate. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the man who did this must die. Can you imagine the crickets in the room when Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man. I believe the correct theological term here is busted. You ever been there? But, 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 busted. There's no getting around this one. David. Key number six, before we go any further with David, pay attention to Nathan. Find some truth tellers in your life. 
This is what I'm convinced in looking at my own life from the last decade and talking to many of you and to many people in Christian circles. Most Christians have many, many, many Christian friends and zero truth tellers in their life. I got 1,247 friends on Facebook, John. That's awesome. Do any of them know what you're struggling with today? So many Christians I know have hundreds of acquaintances and Christian friends and nobody that they've given access to their life. And that A word, that accountability word, is kind of a dirty, naughty word in some Christian circles because we just associate it with judgment. People that you're accountable to are the people that love you enough to tell you the truth. Nathan was the friend that David needed. Not the friend that David wanted in that moment, but the friend that David needed. And that's who true friends are. A couple years ago, I started to meet with a couple guys every Thursday afternoon. And we get together. And the greatest gift that these two men have given me, (laughs) I have lost my opportunity for BS. And I don't mean Bible study. Can I say that? I've lost my opportunity to BS, and here's why. Because they know me. And I've said, I give you permission that if you see something in my life that is not who God made me to be and is not the man that I've told you I want to be, you have my permission to call me out on it, to speak the truth in love, and they do. And it's the greatest gift that they've given me is that I can be John. Not Pastor John, but John, broken, imperfect human being that falls into temptation. And I need community. I can't isolate myself. And in these moments, it just reminds me, you want to be proactive in your fight against temptation? Who's your circle? Who's your tribe? I'm not talking about 10 people that you need to spill your beans to. Every single one of us needs one, two, three people, an inner circle that you can completely open up your closets to and say, this is what's going on. Marriage is really, really difficult right now. I am really, really feeling distant from God right now. I cheated. I messed up. I broke somebody's heart. I yelled at my spouse. I yelled at my kid. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know if I believe in God. Do you have people that you can be real with? If there's any place that you should be able to find real, real people, it's right here in the church. And that's why we're always talking about get in a group, take a class, join a team, meet some people. The quickest way to get taken out is to isolate yourself. Key number seven, the enemy of freedom is isolation. The enemy of freedom is isolation. The worst thing you can do when you have made a mistake and you are ashamed is hide. And I see it happening so often in church. I'll see people after a couple months. Where have you been? Oh, uh, you wouldn't want to know. Actually, I really would want to know because I want to pray for you. I can't pray for you if I don't know what's going on. Oh, John, you wouldn't know. I just... You know, it just wasn't a good time to be in church after everything that I did, after everything that's been going on in our family. What? Where did you get that idea? This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. This is the first place that you should be after you've screwed up. One of the things I love about our community is I'm hanging out during breakfast and hanging out before worship, talking to people, hearing what's going on in their life. And I hear people say, you know, it's been a really hard week. I'm really struggling, I'm really hurt, and I haven't been able to get out of the house, anything, whatever it is, really hurting, really struggling, but I had to be here today. And I say, praise God. Praise God for that. I am so glad that you're here. 
In 10 minutes before worship today, I talked to people that thought about taking their own life, are very, very struggling with depression, struggling with mental illness, struggling with a divorce, had too much to drink last night, and berated their kids. And they're here. Praise God. Welcome to church. Welcome to hope, right? And we don't clap for us, we clap for the freedom that's available in Jesus Christ. And so in this moment with Nathan, David has a choice. He's in this X marks the spot moment and he can confess it or he can deny it. In verse 13 of chapter 12, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. On the road to redemption, key number eight, confession is the first step to restoration. Confession is the first step to restoration. Because David came clean, we have one of the most beautiful psalms ever written. Some of you think like the Psalms were written in this like beautiful tower and David sitting there with his harp and saying, oh, life is perfect. Most of the Psalms were written by David in a cave running for his life or at the bottom of the pit. I'm tanked, I'm empty, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. And David writes this in Psalm 51, verse one. Let's read it together up on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, Blot out the stain of my sins. When's the last time you prayed, have mercy on me, O oh God? When's the last time you said in your prayer life or said to God, I am so sorry? The two words that can change any relationship, whether it's your relationship with God, your spouse, your kids. When's the last time you said to your spouse, I'm so sorry? When's the last time you said to your kids, I'm so sorry? I have recently discovered the power of modeling asking forgiveness with your kids. Last week, like I said, our kids are six and four, and they were goofing around, and all of a sudden it turned a little aggressive, and Caleb, just kind of on accident, just kicks Evie right in the face. And I just, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Yep. And I just blew up at him, you guys. Oh, he's the pastor, he has a perfect family. I went off and I raised my voice and I grabbed him and I set him down on the couch. Most times when we're in an argument, it has way more to do with you than it has to do with the other person. And I went with my feelings, I rode that caboose for a while in the moment and I just laid into him. And one of the beautiful things about having your kids watch shows like Daniel Tiger is that they learn these little jingles for when you're in different situations. And I am red in the face. I am blowing up at my son, just berating him. And then Evie, our four-year-old, is standing over in the corner and she goes, when you feel so mad that you wanna roar, take a deep breath and count to four. And I just turn and I look at her and every ounce of me just wants to, and I just turn, I look at her and I go, thanks girlfriend. And later that night when I'm reading to Caleb and we're singing some songs before bed, I just say, hey buddy, I'm really sorry. Daddy yelled, didn't he? Do mommies and daddies make mistakes sometimes? Yeah. You want an exercise in humility? Apologize to your six-year-old. Well, to anybody for that matter. No excuses. I was wrong, buddy. 
and he can tell that I'm crying, and which is good. Parents, do your kids see you cry once in a while? Hope so. I said, do you forgive me? And he never actually said yes, but he does this thing he always does with Tiffany and I. He just puts his arms around our neck, and he just pulled me toward his chest really tight and hugged me for about a minute. I said, I'm going to take that as a yes, that you forgive me. Like, way past bedtime, okay? And then he lets me go after a minute. He looks at me with this big old smile, as only he can do, and says, Daddy, can we stay up late and play Legos? Ah, funny, funny, goofy. And it was like, in that moment, God's like, oh, it's the same way with you, buddy. Meaning me, buddy. Sometimes God calls me buddy. There are moments and seasons in your life where you have carried guilt and shame for way too long. And God says, would you just come here and let me give you a hug and remind you of who you are, that you are loved and forgiven so we can move on and play Legos? You have been carrying that weight and that burden, Daddy, for way too long, Caleb says. Would you drop it already? I've already moved on, God says. I'm already looking at your future and you're stuck in the past. And some of you have been carrying that weight for way too long. Were there consequences to David's sin? Absolutely. People got hurt. Families were destroyed. Marriages were destroyed. Kids got sick and died. There are real life consequences, but it did not stop David from accepting the free gift of God's grace. Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 23. One of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what's available for you. And that's how you finish the circle. We repent and we believe the good news that there is grace that is bigger than your sin. There is forgiveness that is bigger than your past and your mistakes. It is available for you today. And here's the best part. Here's the best part. Key number 10 on the other side of confession is joy. On the other side of confession is joy. Psalm 32 puts it this way. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. You don't have to have any skeletons in your closet. You don't have to carry the weight of that burden anymore. Do you want to take a wild guess who wrote Psalm 32? Your boy, David. And boy, would he know, because those who have been forgiven much, love much. For those who have been forgiven much, that's where the joy is. That's where the freedom is. God isn't inviting you to confession and repentance to give you more things to feel terrible about. He wants to set you free. And you were never meant to live life like this. You were meant to live life like this. Amen? To worship him in freedom. That's why we confess. That's why we repent. What if today was the day when you finally came clean? What if today was that moment where you could take this and not take it back and say, I don't need to carry that anymore. I am leaving it at the foot of the cross because it's already been paid for. The price has already been paid. You can't pay for something that's already been purchased for you. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. You have been set free. Sometimes we need a picture of what that looks like, and it's hard to relate to David and his freedom and his joy and his forgiveness. Maybe we need another picture. You maybe know that joy. David knows that joy. And so does a man named Jean Valjean. He's a thief and a robber, and he sneaks into the bishop's house of all places, the bishop who's put him up for the night, given him everything, free access to his house, 
everything he could ever want. And what does he do? He takes what isn't his. Just like David. Taking another man's wife, well, Beljan is a thief and a robber and murderer just the same. Watch what happens when he's busted. Watch what happens when we encounter the power of God's forgiveness. Take a look. Boy, it seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Some of you, I guarantee, are sitting there right now going, great speech, John, but you have no clue what I've done. I don't. But he does. And he's already paid for it. You've been ransomed as well. Paid for, bought at a price by the blood of the lamb so that you don't have to carry it anymore. And you don't have to live in shame and regret, whether it's something that you did or happened to you 10 years ago or something you did last week. You're in God's house today. And let me remind you of what your father says. You no longer belong to evil or the darkness. You don't belong to your past. You belong to a glorious future that Jesus is calling you. And he's wrapping you up in his arms and he's pulling you close. And maybe he wants to play Legos with you or maybe he just wants to live life with you in the joy and the freedom of knowing that you are loved more than you will ever know. Amen? Amen. Let's not just talk about it. Let's sing about it. I want to invite you to stand and let's sing of God's love together.